As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Justin Coletti of Sonic Scoop. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode of the Sonic Scoop podcast. And today, I'm going to give you one of the best exercises, one of the best tools for training your ears, and not just training your ears, but for getting better at mastering and at mixing. And honestly, the things you learn from this approach could make you potentially better at arranging and recording and even writing. One really simple exercise be that powerful. I think it has profound implications in the way that you listen to music, the way you evaluate other people's mixes, the way you evaluate your own mixes, masters, and your own productions. This is a relatively simple procedure that I like to call master mimicking. And it's something that I've been doing for a long time. And it's something that you might have done without even really thinking about it yourself. But there are ways to go wrong with this simple but powerful technique. And I want you to steer clear of some of the potential pitfalls and traps. And I also want to give you a few insights, I hope, into how to make this process even more effective at improving your skills and improving your mixes and your masters going forward. I'm going to talk about first through the lens of mastering, but then we'll talk about through the lens of mixing and a few other facets of music production as well. Let's get into it. What exactly is master mimicking? How do you go about it? What are some of the best practices here? And how can you use this exercise to enhance your work? I'm going to tell you all about it. The only thing we've got to do before I do is get through the briefest of shout outs to our sponsors. The most important sponsor is always being you. How do you sponsor this podcast? Well, you can sponsor with your likes, your subscribes, hit the notification bell. If you're on one of the audio-only platforms like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, consider leaving a rating and review. But the best way to sponsor this podcast is to sponsor yourself with one of our great full-length courses like Mixing Breakthroughs, which will change the way you mix forever for the better. Absolutely guaranteed or your money back. We've had thousands of students take this course. And it's actually chock full of exercises like this one that are going to improve the way that you work. It's not just about watching me mix and mouse around on the screen, although I do plenty of that and there's half of the course's mixed walkthroughs, but some of the conceptual frameworks that you're going to get in the theory section will give you true breakthroughs along with some of the exercises that are in there. Well, if you actually do these things, your skills are going to get better. And this is the way you actually get better at mixing, by mixing. And there are some precise exercises that you can do, or even if you do them just once or twice in your life, it will change the way you listen forever. So check that out at mixingbreakthroughs.com. Or if you prefer to learn everything that I know about mastering, check out the full-length course on mastering, Mastering Demystified, over at masteringdemystified.com. 
Last couple of quick shout outs. Sound Toys sponsoring this podcast from the beginning, making some of my favorite creative mixing effects in the known universe. Try out anything they make for free for 30 days over at soundtoys.com. Also, big shout out and thanks to Antelope Audio for sponsoring this month. They make some killer interfaces, often DSP powered, that'll give you extra juice for mixing or tracking with effects in real time with practically zero latency and a great line of modeling mics as well. They've got some excellent bundles going. Check them out at antelopeaudio.com. All right, let's get right into it. Master mimicking. And a little later on, we'll talk about its close cousin, mix matching. Why you should do this stuff and sometimes why you shouldn't. But I'll tell you, this was instrumental, monumental in helping me improve my chops, my skills at mastering. But not only that, just as importantly, my confidence in mastering. And not only did I do it in the beginning to get better at it and to improve my confidence, but I still do it sometimes to this day. And every once in a while, I will send clients a final master that's informed by this technique. So master mimicking is really simple. I just named it for this podcast episode. I didn't have a name before, but now it's got to have one. So now it has a name. It's a really simple idea, which is I'm going to get references from a client and I'm going to use references the wrong way. The right way, generally speaking, to use references in a mastering context is not to mimic them precisely. But instead, you kind of get maybe at least three songs or records that you know your clients love the sound of. And you just use them to set the parameters where you say, well, here's the basiest of the three tracks. If I go even basier than that, we're probably too bassy. Here's the brightest of those three tracks. If I go even brighter than that with a master, then we're probably going too bright. So it's just kind of giving me the borders in which to work. And then I'm trying to find a place for this record to sit that makes sense uniquely for it within the framework of those three or more references. So not trying to mimic any one of them specifically. But one of the best ways to get better at mastering is to ignore that advice and go and try to mimic other records exactly. Now, that doesn't mean that's how your final master should end up. But if you get an awe-inspiringly great reference, I don't know, Beck's Paper Tiger, that's a great sounding tracker. There's so many we can throw out there. There's so many of my favorite references that I come back to again and again. And you say to yourself, how could I... And what would I have to do to make it feel like this song that I got from my client belongs on this specific record, one of their references? What exactly would I have to do to make it feel like it could be the next song coming up on this album and it would fit seamlessly with this other totally different track that was recorded in a totally different way, mixed by a totally different person, mastered by a totally different engineer. Can I mimic its overall sonic profile so that when this track that I'm mastering now comes up, it just sounds like it's part of the same album? What would I have to do to make that happen? Now, if you're not mastering, there's some examples I'm going to give you in a mixing context in just a bit, and it's not going to be this exact same approach. It's going to be a subtle variation on this. So don't get too far ahead of yourself and start doing this on your own mixes. I think you might start driving yourself crazy if you try that. But in a mastering context, it's an absolutely great thing to be able to do. And every once in a while, when I'm working with a new client, and they'll send me references that sound dramatically different than their actual record sounds. I need to figure out, are these spiritual references for them? Were they like the music? 
Or are they sonic references where this is what they were aiming for? They were going for this level of low end. They were going for this amount of loudness or this much saturation or this much brightness, and they just didn't get there? Or is this just stuff that they like as music and they're not trying to emulate it? And one thing I'll do sometimes when their record sounds really far off from some of the references, I'll pick one and I'll say, okay, let me do an alternate version of this master where I make it sound like it belongs on the record with this other great commercially released track that they love the sound of, that was mastered by one of the best people on the planet, that was mixed by a great engineer. And let me just radically, potentially reshape the sound of their record so it fits that mold. Now, this is not the default thing that you should actually do in practice for most records. But every once in a while, I will apply this approach and I will send the client a few different options. And I might send them one option and say, hey, here's your record back sounding pretty close to your original mix. And I'm really respecting what you did. And I just tried to add a little bit of depth, a little bit of articulation, make sure the low end wasn't too far out of control. And here it is back pretty much the way you sent it with some enhancements. And I think you're going to find greater maybe depth, maybe greater width, maybe greater height, maybe greater front to back or greater impact. But also there's this alternate version. I noticed that a lot of your references sounded totally different than yours. Maybe it was in uh, the rock style and there were these rock references they were listening to that were way mid-rangier than their record. This is something that happens sometimes. People will send me their mixes, their masters, and they have this impressive big bottom, big top, scooped, smiley face EQ curve to their mix. And then I listen to their favorite records and it's like, they don't sound like that. They sound mid-rangey. And you were just afraid, not confident enough to push this thing a little more mid-rangey and soften the top a bit and make it sound more like a hard rock record instead of like, a big, amped-up, electronic approach put on top of a rock record. And sometimes clients will get back this radically altered version where I basically try to very closely match one of their favorite records that their records sound nothing like, and they'll go, wow, that's awesome. That's how we meant for it to sound. It feels so much better now. And in fact, things have changed. One of the things that we realized, say in the context of rock again, is that what you did made the guitars come out so much more. Well, we had the drums kind of being the biggest, loudest thing in the mix, but now they've kind of taken a little bit more of a backseat, and now the guitars are roaring loud, and it actually sounds more like our favorite records. And it can teach them, the end client, about how to think and how to listen when it comes to mixing even if they don't go with that radical master-mimicked version. But just you going through this exercise of trying to do master-mimicking will teach you a lot, A, about how to get where you want to end up, because chances are this is not something that gets released. Chances are this is not something that even goes to the client. It's just for your own experimentation. So all of a sudden you're confident enough to turn the knob around backwards or upside down to make things sound good. And you're not worried about boosts and cuts looking too big or anything like that. You're just doing whatever it takes, no matter how stupid it looks and no matter how wrong it is to get it to the right place. And doing this just as an exercise will give you the confidence to do that and find out just how hard you can push things. But it will also help you discover the kinds of things 
that cannot be fixed or cannot be changed and cannot be adjusted in mastering. And it'll also give you a sense for the ways in which that heavy-handed mastering can sometimes make things sound better and sometimes make things sound a lot worse. And it can also make you realize that sometimes the most important thing isn't how impressive the final master sounds, but how well you're following the emotional arc of the song. Sometimes it doesn't matter how close you sound to references. It matters whether or not you're getting emotional impact from the track. Now, again, the caveat here is that I recommend this first and foremost as an exercise to get better, where you're not showing this stuff to final clients. It's not stuff that gets released. It is really just an exercise that you do. But like I said, every once in a while, I will use this technique not only to learn about this particular production and how far I could push it and what I can change and what I can't, but every once in a while, this mimicked master will sound great and is exactly what the client wants, and that'll go to them. And every once in a while, of course, what I send to the client, the thing that sounds best is their master basically pretty much flat the way they sent it to me, and my job is to not ruin it. And one of the most important things about mastering is knowing when to do which. And one of the most important things about knowing when to do which is communicating with a client and hearing some of their favorite records and finding out what they sound like. Sometimes when I do this master mimicking approach and I send it to an end client because their record sounded pretty far off from the references, we'll both learn from that that they actually do want their record to sound pretty far off from the references. This happened with a great mixer that I worked with recently where him and the client sent me all these references that were way darker than his mixes. So I took his mixes in the direction of going a little bit darker. I didn't quite do the master mimicking, but I went in a much darker direction, really inspired by that stuff, and sent it back to him. I'm like, here's what it sounds like if we make it sound like some of your favorite records. And they came back and said, no, we want all that brightness back. We liked it that way. And I brought it back into the studio and gave them a relatively flat-sounding master that they were super excited with. But in exactly the same week, I ended up doing almost exactly the same thing with another client's master, and they absolutely loved how their record sounded after a really significant amount of top end was reduced, getting it more into the spirit of some of their favorite releases. So it really comes down to individual taste. There's no right or wrong about this stuff. And that brings me to the other big important thing about master mimicking is that it will make you way more confident. If you know without a shadow of a doubt, that the mixes that are being sent to you, you can make them sound like they belong on any other record ever recorded. And you've done that enough times that you can say, if you give me something that sounds good, I can make it sit there like it belongs on a record that was mastered by one of my favorite mastering engineers, whether it's Bob Ludwig or Greg Calby or Joe Lambert or whoever, when you've gone through that physical experience of matching a well-produced track to one of theirs and making it feel like it really fits on one of these records, these awesome records that you and countless tens, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people have loved, and you know that you can do that, man, that's super inspiring. And I don't want this part to sound like bragging, but I've gotten there with my own work, where I'm confident that 
if you sent a track to me to master and to Bob Ludwig or Greg Calfier, Joe Lambert, my favorite people to master, I could make it sound the same way that they made their sound by listening to their results, and I could, with some effort, match it. Wouldn't that be a cool skill for you to have? Now, I'm not saying that you should spend the rest of your life trying to match the work of others. Often in music, it's a great idea to go in a slightly different direction while being influenced by others. But wouldn't it be a great confidence builder if you could? And it is totally achievable. Now, one caveat here is you can't do this approach and expect every production to sound better because of it. You can totally make a particular production sound worse by trying to match the wrong record. And that's why taste is so important and why it's so important not to use this as your default. I'm going to match my client's references. Because often enough, you're kind of trying to shoehorn it into a mold that it just doesn't fit into. And you've got to respect the integrity and the unique aspects of this particular record and not try to make it fit on somebody else's record. And that's why this is like a break glass in case of emergency on actual sessions and why it's an exercise and not an approach to mastering that I recommend. A similar thing goes with mixing. Again, as an exercise, this idea of mix matching. Now, with mix matching, it's a little different. I really don't recommend that you go in on a mix you're currently working on and then try to totally reshape your EQ on your master bus and all of your master bus processing to try to emulate another record. You're going to drive yourself crazy trying to do that. But what you can do, preferably as an exercise, especially at first, on a track hopefully that you've already completed, revisit a track that you finished. You're no longer emotionally attached to it. It no longer matters how it comes out. And you try to change your approach to your mix on that one song. And in doing so, you try to match a close reference in one or two or three key ways. One thing to look at might be the kick versus bass relationship on your mix. And you go in there and say, man, this reference that I love, that's kind of in the same world as the record that I was working on, what are they doing with their kick and bass that makes it so cool? And what would I have to do to my kick and bass to make it sound equally as cool? What's going on here? And you might find in a particular song that it's like, wow, the bass on that song is awesome. And I wish I had that kind of bass sound and that kind of prominence. Like the bass really takes this song along. And then you listen to it and you go, wait a second, in their track, I actually can't hear the kick drum that much. They're letting the bass dominate. And that's why the bass sounds so cool. On another track, you might discover it's like, wow, I can hear both the kick and the bass together. But it turns out that the kick is this tight little nugget without a lot of low end on it. And the bass is this kind of subby, thing that's underneath it that the kick is almost resting on top of. And they went and made their kick and bass fit together like a jigsaw in that way, where there's a big, tubby, fat bass that's not too articulate and a really tight and articulate kick drum. So I can really follow the both of them. That's interesting. What if I tried to mimic that approach in my mix? You can do the same thing looking at vocals and say, how loud is the vocal in this track relative to the rhythm section and the backing tracks? How wet is it? How long is the reverb? 
And is it reverb or delay being used? And try to match that level of vocal in your track. And what if I tried to make my vocal sit the exact same level in my mix as it does in theirs? Or what if I tried to mimic the exact same effect they have on their vocal? What would that take? What's the difference between my reverb, my ambience, and theirs? And you might discover, wait a second, their reverb has a lot less top end on it. Maybe it has a lot less bottom end too. Maybe the reverb is fairly mid-rangey, and that's why they can get away with having so much of it without taking up so much space in the mix. Maybe you'll discover that their reverb is almost like a delay where there's a significant pre-delay on their reverb, and it never occurred to you to try that on this particular mix. So you try a significant pre-delay before the reverb even hits, and you go, wow, now we're getting closer. Another great place to do this kind of mix matching technique is with panning. Ask yourself, I love the width in this record. Which sounds are being panned? And does it sound like they're being hard panned or just panned a little bit or panned significantly? Is it a lot of elements or just one or two? What elements are they? And what elements are playing the same role in my mix that I can do the same thing with? And it's funny because a lot of people come up with their own default pan settings that they always go to. Like, oh, we'll do it at, you know, 40 and 100 and whatever numbers they come up with without ever really listening to some favorite records and saying, how do things sound panned in these records? How are they approaching? Are the background vocals panned hard left and right? Or are they panned kind of center and way back? Are bright, chimey things like acoustic guitars the things that are being hard panned? Or is it more supple and less transient instruments? Another thing to look at for mix matching would be snare drums. The same kind of exercise you do on a vocal, where you try to get your snare to sit at the exact same level in the mix as the snare does on a favorite track of yours, where you try to mimic the effects, where you try to mimic the EQ curve. And this will also give you a great sense for what can and cannot be done in mixing. When you're trying mix matching on a kick or a snare, sometimes you will find that no matter how far you turn the knob around backwards, you ain't matching their kick and you ain't matching their snare. Because the issue is not the EQ. It's not the compression. It's not the reverb. It's not the limiting. The issue is the instrument itself, whether the snare drum or the kick drum that you recorded and how or whether it's the sample that you've selected. That's the place where you would need to reevaluate and readdress things if you really wanted to do mix matching. Now, I'm not saying you should take this approach and do sound-alike recordings and have that be your field, where now you just mimic other people's mixes and productions. But wouldn't it be cool if you could, if you wanted to? And even more importantly than that, Think of the lessons that you'll learn along the way by trying to do mix matching, not across the entire mix, not across the mix bus treatment, but on a few core elements. Try mix matching the kick, the bass, the vocal, the snare, the panning, the effects. Pick any one to three of those items that you think are the most suitable for mix matching and give it a try. And if you do give either of these techniques a try, 
I want to hear about in the comments down below. Or shoot me an email at podcast at sonicscoop.com. But seriously, give this a shot. If you have been doing it, let us know how it's been working out for you in the comments down below, what you've learned from taking this kind of approach. And if you haven't done it, go do it. And then sometime this week, come back here into the comments and let us know what you discovered, how it worked out for you, how it's been helping you along your journey. Also, if you hate this process and you think it can lead you astray, let me know about that too. I think I've offered some caveats here about how it can go wrong. But if you've got your own experience with it, I want to know about it. All right. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode of the Sonic Scoop podcast. Big shout out to you for joining me and making it this long. If you did make it this long, you might love one of my full-length courses like Mixing Breakthroughs that is chock full of exercises like this one, where if you do them, you will get better at mixing. Of course, it's also chock full of multi-tracks done across a variety of DAWs, mixes done using nothing but stock plugins, so you can recall them and work on them yourself, and mixes done with nothing but stock plugins where I try to beat a Grammy-winning, multi-platinum-selling engineer. And how does the mix turn out? I think you're going to be surprised. Check it out at MixingBreakthroughs.com. It's got a 30-day money-back guarantee, and I know it's going to change the way that you mix forever for the better. Or if you want to know everything that I know about mastering, check out Mastering Demystified over at MasteringDemystified.com. Quick shout out and thanks to our other sponsors. Once again, Sound Toys, making some of my favorite creative mixing effects in the known universe. Try out anything they make for free for 30 days over at SoundToys.com. Absolutely phenomenal effects. If you have not tried them out, you owe it to yourself to try them out. Or maybe don't, because if you try them out, you're going to want to buy them. They're that good. Practically any of the major mixers and producers who've done a MixCon presentation have used Sound Toys plugins somewhere in their work because they're so much fun to use and they get such great results. Also, shout out and thanks to Antelope Audio making stellar interfaces and modeling microphones and their whole line of Antelope effects. They've got DSP-powered interfaces from the small, bus-powered ZenGo Synergy Core all the way up to their larger rack mounts for larger studios. Check them out and everything they make over at antelopeaudio.com. They've got some great deals out there right now on bundles of their interfaces, effects, and modeling mics. All right. Thanks again for joining me. This has been Justin Coletti of Sonic Scoop. See you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.